All right, well, uh, believe it or not, we are now in week seven in our Scenes in Acts series, uh, looking at the, some of the most dramatic moments in the book of Acts, the start of the early church. And we definitely have a dramatic moment to look at this week. Um, this is a great story about how God turns a really bad into situation into something beautiful. And as I was reflecting on this story this week, it challenged me to ask myself this question. And this is a question I'm going to encourage all of us to ask ourselves this week. There's actually several difficult questions <laughs> that I'm going to encourage us all to ask. You might have noticed that on your notes this week, there's no outline. But if you were taking notes, the thing I would encourage you to do is to write down all the challenging questions for reflection that are going to come up throughout this, this message. So here's the first challenging question. When I do the right thing, but things go badly, how do I react? When we make bad choices and then bad things happen to us, that's hard enough, right? But when we're trying to make good choices, we feel like we're doing the right thing, we feel like we're trying to follow the Lord's will, and yet things still don't seem to be going well for us, that's exceptionally hard. I think that's harder uh, a lot of the time than the first thing. You know, say you are consistently faithful to always tithe 10% of your income, you're generous, you give to charity, you give to the church, but then you still lose your job. Uh, or you have trouble making ends meet uh, when the bills are coming in every month. Um, or say you do the best you can to take care of yourself, you exercise regularly, um, Again, you're doing your best to, to follow the Lord's will. You try to eat well, but you still come down with some sort of terrible illness, uh, some sort of chronic illness. Um, say you do your best to be a good member of society, to be a good citizen, law-abiding, but you still end up being accused of something you never did or being sued for something silly. Things like this happen, right? This is not a just world that we're living right in right now. Bad actions are not immediately punished, and uh, good actions are not always immediately rewarded. And if you've never felt that injustice at all yet, one, you're extremely unusual, <laughs> and two, I guarantee that if you live long enough, you eventually will. You eventually feel the weight of the injustice in the world. So the question is not whether or not we're going to experience injustice, because we are, but the, the question is, how are we going to react when we do? And the reason I bring that up is because one possible reaction is to take your frustration and resentment and direct it towards God, right? It's, it, one response is to say, what is the matter with you, God? How could you do this to me? How could you allow this? And I don't know if you guys have ever found yourselves in that situation where you're asking God those kinds of questions, but I know I've been there before. And this story is an inspiration to me not to fall into that kind of attitude. And hopefully that will become clear why as we, as we go through it. But it's an inspiration to me not to grow resentful towards the Lord, but rather to trust him when things don't go well. So let's look at the story. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Acts 16, starting in verse 16. Acts 16, 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, 
we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. All right. So our story starts off with a slave girl who has a spirit in her, and this spirit helps her to predict the future, which means that her owners can make a lot of money off of her as a fortune teller. Now, I realize that in the culture that we live in today, talk about spirits uh, can be seen as very superstitious, uh, maybe primitive and backwards, but regardless of what our culture thinks, we need to recognize that this is part of the perspective that the Bible presents us with consistently, that there is an unseen realm and that there are spirits in that unseen realm that affect the world that we live in right now. Uh, there are evil spirits that are actively waging war with God who have purposes against God's purposes, and one of their primary purposes is to destroy humanity. Okay, so. Whether that sounds superstitious or not, that is what the Bible teaches. And something that's important for us to recognize is that pretty much every human culture that has existed has believed in some form of spirits. It's a very recent phenomenon, and specifically in the Western world, to be very dismissive of the reality of, a, of an unseen realm. Um, even in the, the modern world today, uh, m many cultures, maybe in most cultures, uh, believe in the existence of, of spirits. So we shouldn't be dismissive, even though our culture often is, of this stuff. One, because it's what the Bible teaches, and two, because it's kind of an ethnocentric thing to be dismissive, to say, well, my culture, even though my culture has a view that's different than most cultures, both in the past and in the present, well, I'm the one, my culture is the one that knows what's right here. We're the, we're the enlightened ones. So we want to be careful not to fall into that, that kind of attitude. <clears throat> but anyway, this slave girl, she had this evil spirit and it helped her to predict the future. Now you might be wondering, well, Ryan, are you saying that demons know the future? Are they omniscient? And my answer to that would be no. I don't think they are omniscient. I don't think they can see into the future. But I do think they've been around for a long time and they have observed human beings for a long time. So they're pretty good at predicting what people are gonna do, or at least they're better than any of us would, would be, uh, because they just have the experience of knowing, well, people, when they're put in these kinds of situations, if they've made these kinds of choices in the past, they're probably likely to do A, B, and C, right? So that's probably why this girl had this ability to predict the future as well as she did. And because she has this ability to, to predict the future, her owners are making a lot of money off of her, but all of this changes the day that Paul and Silas come to town. Uh, it says that this slave girl starts following them around and shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, I was confused by this because I thought, why is that a bad thing, right? That sounds like free advertising. And, and it's true, right? They are servants of the Most High God and they are telling the way to be saved. So why is this something that would annoy Paul? Well, two reasons. Uh, first, 
That phrase, most high God, in that culture, when most people heard that, they would think of Zeus. So what this girl is saying is not an entirely accurate reflection of what Paul and Silas are, are doing, right? They're not serving Zeus. But the other reason is because even if what she's saying is mostly true, it's the way she's doing it. She's following them around and yelling it. I mean, can you imagine if every time I preached, one of you just kept yelling, this is a servant of the Most High God. I, that, would, that would not be helpful at all. And I might be patient for a little while, but eventually I'd be like, this needs to stop, right? And the rest of you probably would as well. So, but Paul and Silas, they exercise patience for quite a while. They put up with this for many days, right? And then Paul is finally, he's just at his wit's end. And so he does what he probably should have done a long time ago, and he commands the spirit to leave. He has a sense this, this girl has an evil spirit, and immediately, in the name of Jesus, the spirit leaves, right? So the annoying yelling is gone, the spirit is gone, but also her ability to predict the future is gone. And so her owners are very upset. So continuing in verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right, so talk about doing the right thing, but things not going well, right? Here's Paul and Silas. They've given up their lives, basically, to follow Jesus, to, to build the church, and They've, they've gone into a, a foreign area, and they're preaching, and they cast a demon out of a girl, which that's a good thing, right? Freeing from somebody from spiritual oppression. They're doing the right things. And what happens? What do they get for that? They get seized. They get dragged somewhere. They have their clothes ripped off, and they get beaten, and they get flogged. It says they get severely flogged, which means they were whipped repeatedly on their backs until they were bruised and their skin was torn. And then, and then with those wounds still throbbing and bleeding, they're put in stocks and they're thrown in jail unjustly. And for who knows how long, right? They don't know how long they're going to be in there. Sometimes we think, if I do God's work, if I do God's will, then I'm going to be spared injustice. Things are going to go okay for me. It's going to be smooth sailing. But the reality is that when we challenge the forces of evil, sometimes they bite back. It's kind of like poking a hornet's nest. If you poke a hornet's nest, the hornets come out and sting you. And yet... God still calls us to poke at the nest, right? He still calls us to challenge the systems of injustice in the world. He still calls us to challenge the forces of darkness and oppression and evil. And yeah, when you do it, people might bite back. You know, when you, when you challenge people's sources of pride and profit, it can come back and bite you. But we're still called to do that. 
So I want to reassure you guys, if you're trying to do things right and it feels like things are still not going well, don't assume immediately, oh, it's because I'm doing something wrong or it's because God doesn't like the way that I'm doing things, right? It's just that when you poke the nest, sometimes you get stung. That's the way it works. Now, there have been times in my life where I feel like I've experienced some measure of injustice. I feel like overall I've led a pretty charmed life, but there have been some times, right? Anytime anybody slanders you, anybody lies about you, you have been a victim of injustice, right? But I know that I've never experienced injustice on the level of what Paul and Silas experience here, like being beaten you know, for no reason, really. I haven't, I haven't had to endure uh, something like that. And I really want us to try and put ourselves in their position. Let's, let's let this be more than just words on a page, but really imagine yourself in their shoes going through that. And I don't know about you, but if I had just gone through that, if I had just been beaten and thrown in jail, I can imagine myself getting a little angry at God especially if I was doing his work. I can imagine being tempted to say something sarcastically to him, like, well, gee, God, thanks for looking out for your own. Gee, God, thanks, you know, thanks for protecting me. Thanks for letting me only get beaten within an inch of my life rather than a centimeter. And I can imagine that resentment starting to build and thinking something like, here I am, God, doing work for you, and you let this happen? But that's not what Paul and Silas do. They don't react that way. Look at this. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. After all that, they're praying and singing hymns. Not turning away from God, but turning to God. Right? Not resenting God, but trusting in God. And I don't know about you, but if i just been beaten and humiliated like that, I don't think I would feel like singing. And I like to sing, but I would have a hard time singing. But Paul and Silas sing. And when they sing, everyone else in the prison can't help but notice. Because that's not what people do after they've been beaten and thrown in prison, right? That's not normal, but that is what they do. So, next tough question. I want us to reflect on this week. Do we believe that God has given us reason to worship even when suffering and injustice are a part of our lives? Because regardless of what we believe, the truth is that he has. He has given us a reason. Because as Christians, we have hope that injustice and suffering are temporary. And we have hope that God is remaking the world and that we're going to get to be a part of that forever. And although the process of doing that involves suffering and injustice, the end result is going to be beautiful. And I I want to be clear about something, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to thank God for terrible things. Uh, I doubt that when Paul and Silas prayed and worshipped, that they were saying, thank you God for the wounds on my back. 
Thank you for this intense pain that I'm experiencing right now. Thank you for this jail cell. I, I don't think they were saying that. And I don't think that we have to thank God for the terrible things in life either. I get the sense that if we do, God is thinking, would you, would you please not give me credit for that? <laughs> I don't want credit for that. I don't want, I don't want credit for cancer and financial problems and, and uh, all, all, various illnesses and that sort of thing. You know, I don't think God wants us to, to thank, us for the, thank him for that stuff, but he does want us to worship him through the suffering and injustice that we experience in our, in our lives. Not for the suffering and injustice, but through it. You know, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. I remember uh, when I was growing up, I had this little book called the Bible Promise Book, and it collected, like, all the encouraging things that God promises in the Bible. It's a nice thing. Well, here's something that probably isn't in the Bible Promise Book, but should be. In this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) In this world, you will have trouble. And then Jesus says, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. See, that's worth thanking God for. That Jesus Christ has overcome the world, that he's making it new, and that we get to be a part of that forever. You know, we can thank him because through Christ, the suffering and injustice of the world are temporary. And those are reasons why we can and we should praise him even if we're in the prison cell. All right, let's uh, keep reading, because the best part of the story is coming. So, continuing in verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. Now, I suppose somebody might try to argue, well, this was just a natural event, this earthquake. But I find the timing a little suspicious, and also the effects of it. I don't know about many earthquakes that would just cause everybody's chains to come loose, right? But that is what happens. So right here we see the direct intervention of God. And if you're like me, you might be asking the question, well, if God can directly intervene and free everybody from this prison, why didn't he just send an earthquake a little earlier before Paul and Silas were getting beaten? Why didn't he do that, right? Well, there's a reason for that. And when we read a little further in the story, it becomes clear. It's because God knew about a certain jailer, and he wanted a certain jailer to have an encounter with some strange Christians. And that's what's about to happen. So, continuing in verse 27, the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. 
All right, so let's walk through what happens here. Uh, the jailer wakes up and he realizes, oh my goodness, all the prisoners are loose. And it says that he, he draws his sword in order to kill himself. Now, why does he do that? Well, that's because in those days, if you were a, a guard or a jailer, uh, that was considered a very important task. And if you lost your prisoners, you were going to face public humiliation and probably execution for not following through on your job. You had one job, you didn't do it, so we're going to punish you in front of everybody. And in fact, one of the ways that they would execute people would be through crucifixion. So this jailer is realizing, my life is probably over. And what he thinks is, well, the best way that I can keep some semblance of honor is just to kill myself right here and now. So he draws the sword, he gets ready to kill himself, he believes his life is over, and then all of a sudden, out of the darkness, comes Paul's voice saying, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And, and, and the jailer probably can't even believe it, so he calls for light, you know, bring in the torches, and sure enough, there they are. The prisoners are still there. They haven't moved. And when, when, when the jailer sees that, he falls down trembling. Now, why does he fall down trembling? Well, part of the reason is definitely because he's relieved. You know, he just thought his life is over, right? But it's not now, and so there's this incredible relief. But I, I think there's more to it than that. I think it's because this man realizes that what he's just witnessed makes no sense at all. You know, think about it from his perspective. A few hours ago, this guy took these severely beaten men and he put them in stocks and he threw them in prison. And he showed no compassion to them at all. Did you notice that in this part of the story, okay, after the jailer converts, it says that he washed their wounds? That means that he didn't wash their wounds before. He could have done that, but he didn't. He just showed no regard for these people at all, right? He just put Paul and Silas into the jail, didn't even bother to clean them up. <clears throat> so he has no reason to think that Paul and Silas would show any compassion for him at all. Um, <laughs> He probably expects what anybody would expect in that situation, which is that the prisoners, as soon as they have this unbelievable opportunity to escape, are going to get up, run out of the prison, say, sorry, sucker, and never come back, right? Why should they care whether he lives or dies? But instead of leaving, they stay. Instead of just trying to save their own skin, they're worried about their captor. They're worried about his life. And that makes no sense at all. So the, I think the jailer trembles because these people are like aliens. They're not acting like normal human beings. They're, they're weird. And he knows that they're showing him a grace and a love that he doesn't deserve because he knows that if the, the roles had been switched, he would have just headed for the exit. He would not have stayed. And so he's brought to his knees, right? He's humbled, and he realizes, okay, whoever these guys worship, I want to be on that God's good side. You know, he probably thought, I've, I've mistreated this God's rep representatives, um, so he must be really angry at me. And so he, he actually takes Paul and Silas out of the prison cell, right? And then he asks them, what must I do to be saved? 
which we hear that and we think it's like he's saying, what can I do to go to heaven and not go to hell? And I don't think that's what he's asking. He's saying, what can I do to escape the wrath of your God who must be very angry at me for treating you the way I have? That's essentially it. How do I get, how do I get on your God's good side? And he probably expected that Paul and Silas would answer the way most religious leaders would. Like, well, go to our temple and sacrifice to our God. Or go to our temple and pay a whole bunch of money. Or give us money. <laughs> or um, give us your best prison food, you know? Or argue for our release, something like that, right? But that's not what they say. They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then it says that they speak the word of the Lord to him, which means they share the gospel with him. They share the good news that Christ has paid for the sins of the world so that he doesn't have to pay for his sins. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they said something like, do you know why? we were able to choose to save you rather than just choose to save ourselves? Do you know why we were able to do that? We're able to do that because the God that we worship, Jesus Christ, chose to save us rather than to save himself. You know, we're able to do that because the one we worship, when he was beaten and crucified, and he, he could have called down a legion of angels to defend himself, he chose not to do that because he knew that his death would be for our benefit. He chose to save us in that moment rather than himself. We can do that because when our God was mistreated, he prayed for those who were mistreating him, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And the result of all this is that the jailer comes to faith in Christ. Right? And not only the jailer, but the whole family and he brings Paul and Silas into his home that night, and they get a great meal. They're shown hospitality. And I love how it says the jailer and his family were filled with joy. The end result of all of this is joy. Now, something important for us to recognize. Are Paul and Silas still prisoners at this point? They are. They're still prisoners. Um, because the jailer, the jailer has taken them to his home, but he can't just keep them there, right? Because if the prisoners go free, then he has to be killed. So at the end of this evening, he's, he's got to bring Paul and Silas back to the jail, which he does. Now, Paul and Silas don't stay there very long because the authorities end up saying you can release them. But that has nothing to do with the earthquake. See, our immediate thought is, oh, this earthquake. This earthquake was for the purpose of making Paul and Silas able to go free, right? Well, if it was for that purpose, it didn't do that. That actually wasn't what the earthquake was for. What we need to realize is that the purpose of the earthquake was to give Paul and Silas an opportunity to show the radical love of God. Isn't that crazy? That's totally counterintuitive. That's not what we think. We think, oh, the, the earthquake has come. Vindication has come. Right, Paul and Silas are going to be able to run out of there. But no, it was for a different purpose. It was, it was to give Paul and Silas an opportunity to run away so that they couldn't take it, so that they wouldn't take it, so that the jailer would be overwhelmed by the grace 
displayed to him. That's an amazing thing. <clears throat> There's a, a quote that I stumbled across a few years ago. Um, it's from a, a Catholic cardinal named Celestin Suhard. I, I may not even be pronouncing that correctly, but it says this. To be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda, nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense unless God exists. To be a witness means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense unless God exists. I love that. And, and what I want us to notice this morning is that that is what Paul and Silas did in this story. They were living mysteries, right? Because apart from the power of God working in their lives, there is no good explanation for their behavior in this story. On a human level, their behavior makes no sense. When they're unjustly arrested and, and beaten and thrown in jail, what do they do? They praise and worship God. They sing. That makes no sense. And when a miraculous earthquake gives them the opportunity to run out of their jail cell, they don't take it. That makes no sense, right? And, and when they had to choose between their own self-interest or the self-interest of their enemy, they chose their enemy. Again, that makes no sense. So in this story, Paul and Silas are being living mysteries. And because they're living mysteries, a hardened jailer falls to his knees and comes to faith in Christ. He and his whole family. Now again, I realize that this is a very hard message. This is a tough message. But another question that I want us to reflect on this week is, am I a living mystery? Am I a living mystery at all? You know, does anyone around me have reason to look at my life and say, that makes no sense? But I'm intrigued. I'm fascinated. Because we have to ask ourselves that question, because when we are living mysteries, uh, that's when people come to faith in Christ, just like the jailer did. Now, I think that in itself is a hard enough message to hear, but I'm going to make it even harder, okay? I think we need to recognize this uncomfortable truth. This is an uncomfortable truth that this story reminds us of, and it's an uncomfortable truth that I think if we reflect on it, we can all acknowledge is true, which is this. It is injustice and suffering that give us the best opportunities to be living mysteries. It is injustice and suffering that give us the best opportunities to be living mysteries. And I didn't even want to say that because I know it applies to me too. Um, but I, I feel like I, I need to. Why were Paul and Silas able to be living mysteries? Why were they able to show uh, that their God was such an incredible source of joy? It was because they had been they had been beaten and thrown in jail, right? If that hadn't happened, we would never have had this opportunity to be so impressed 
by the fact that they're able to worship in those circumstances, right? And if, uh, if they had never been the victims of injustice, they never would have been able to show such incredible grace to that jailer. And if God had miraculously intervened sooner to spare them from being in that jail, they never would have been able to show just how much of a living mystery they could be, right? And that jailer would not have been converted. So I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that we should accept mistreatment and injustice, that we should think there's nothing wrong with it, that we shouldn't stand up for ourselves. Okay, I'm not saying that. Part of standing up for injustice is standing up for it when you're a victim of it, right? So that's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm trying to say is this. When things take a turn for the worst, okay, when life is not fair, in those times, we have an opportunity to be living mysteries. And there's an opportunity to be a living mystery that comes in those circumstances that doesn't come except in those circumstances. And when we are living mysteries, people encounter God. And people come to know him. So, examples. I mean, when we're generous, right? When we don't repay evil for evil. When somebody insults us, but we respond with, we, we respond with a kind word. When we aren't controlled by money and profit, like so much of the world is. When we are faithful in our marriages and in our families, even when it's hard to be faithful. When we look out for others' interests and not just our own. When we're able to have peace even when sickness or death are hovering over our lives. When we're filled with love instead of fear. That's a rare thing. When we do those things, we become living mysteries to the rest of the world. And when we are living mysteries, people notice. And, and people will ask, uh, maybe not in the jailer's words, but in the same spirit, what must I do to be saved? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. And when we think about how it applies to our own lives, it is a tough story. It's a beautiful one, but it reminds us that we aren't necessarily going to be spared from injustice. Um, but I pray, Lord, that we would take comfort in knowing that it is in those times that we have an incredible opportunity to show how amazing you are and to see people come to know you. And Lord, we don't, we don't ask for suffering or injustice in our lives, but we pray that if it comes, you would always help us to have this perspective, to see it as an opportunity. Um, and Father, we, we pray that we would see people come to Christ just like this jailer. We would see people who are, who are hardened and might seem compassionless uh, be filled with your joy and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.